Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Europe, when I came up in the 90s, structurally the glass ceiling for immigrant refugees to create and own a business, to dream big, it wasn't there for me. It was better for me to go to America. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Marcus Samuelson, the Michelin-starred chef behind Harlem's Red Rooster and the host of the new show, No Passport Required, which is a, a food and travel show from Vox Media and PBS that roots itself in America's immigrant communities and uses them as a window into a diversifying country. Samuelson is an amazing guy with an amazing story. He was born in Ethiopia to a mother who carried him and his sister, all three of them suffering from tuberculosis, 75 miles on foot to a hospital. His mother died, but, but he and his sister survived, and they were adopted by a Swedish family, which is where he grew up. Samuelson's life, what he has done and who he's become and what he has created, is this extraordinary testament to what is possible when countries open themselves to each other, how much everyone can gain when we give people with a different perspective the chance to build on our traditions, to mix them with their traditions, to see our experiences and create something that couldn't have existed without that fusion. I want to have this conversation because I've been thinking a lot on the show about diversity and immigration and demographic change in these sort of high-level political ways, right? What do they do to societies? How do people have conflict over them? But the ways in which we actually experience them, the ways in which a country diversifying and changing feels, it's much more normal. It's that there's an immigrant community near your community. It's that there's food that you wouldn't have had otherwise. It's that there are people remixing their culture and your culture, making it our culture in a way there hadn't been before. So this is a, a conversation about that intersection of, of diversity, of creativity, of openness, what it means, what it needs. And it's a conversation about food and travel and innovation. And then, and I, I want to call this out because you, you'll hear it's a bit of an intense segment. Towards the end, we, we talk about Anthony Bourdain, the, the patron saint of shows like No Passport Required. Bourdain was a, a close friend and inspiration for Samuelson. We, we talk about it, and it's an emotional topic. And I'm grateful to Samuelson for his openness in discussing Bourdain's death and the power of his life. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here, I'm proud to present is my conversation with Marcus Samuelson. Marcus Samuelson, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. By the way, I am super, super excited. This is a big, uh, big day for me. So thank you for for having this conversation. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. So to to prep for this, I listened to some other podcasts you did, mm. and you told them you're excited. So I'm now worried that you just have this extremely <laughs> effective form of pre podcast flattery that you deploy to to make sure all my hard questions get put away. <laughs> okay, I'm not excited. Uh, you're speaking to an angry black man. How about that? I hope you make that made you more comfortable now. There we go. I, I always like yeah. my podcast to have some friction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me begin. Let's actually begin with the show because mm. uh, I, I've been watching it, and, and obviously it's a, mm. it's a Fox Media and, and PBS and, and, and Marcus Samuelson Productions. So so we have corporate partnerships there. Yeah. But I've thought it's really beautiful in a way. Uh, a lot of these aren't. It, it's a food show, but. It's a show about immigration at a time mm -hmm. when I think America is very unsettled about what it is it believes or does not believe immigrants bring to their communities. So I wanted to start there. What is what is the point of the show to you? Yeah, so that's a great. Well, I think first of all, when first of all, timing, right? When when Chad and your team from Eater it's reached Chad out Mom to me, from Box Entertainment. Yeah, when when Chad um, and the team reached out and they came uptown and we had dinner, I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the show I always wanted to do. I'm an immigrant and, you know, I want to share experiences, right? But the moment, this is two years ago, so the moment wasn't as, it wasn't as crazy as now. And we kept chipping away and we, you know, then we had to do all that stuff behind the scene, like settle the show and figuring it out and figuring out how partner was. But once PBS came in, it was like, yes, now we have sort of the traditional media with new media and, and the moment, and at the same time, you know, this moment on the side here was just growing. The election happened, all of this stuff happened. And we're like, we have to do this show. So I think these two things were kind of like parallel running. And then shooting the show changed too because we weren't necessarily clear on which cities to go to or what, you know, ethnicities to, to work with. But obviously... Haitian just walked in there. We kind of got there from, from, from some, some a couple of people down in D.C., right? We felt always we wanted to go to Chicago and tell the Mexican tale and Detroit and Arab community. Be, be really specific on one of these with me. Tell me about, tell me something that you reported out. It doesn't yeah. have to have appeared on the show that has been something that changed the way you thought. What, what is something you've seen in doing this work that has stuck with you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you and just be like, I think as a black man, I don't want to sound paranoid, but you trained for this shit. And I'm actually surprised that other people are so offended because this is what happens to black people all the time. <laughs> Do you know what, what I mean? What is the this in that sentence? A false narrative peddled about who you are and reestablished who you are constantly, right? So I was like, okay, so now it happens to other people. And now how do you then fight back, right? And that idea about fighting back, what should the fist up look like in a 2018 scenario, I constantly looked at... Um, and just so I'm, I'm clear of what, what you're saying, you're saying that, that there are these false narratives that are being applied to these immigrant communities... First narrative has been applied to immigrant community uh, for you know it's every day. Like we hear about immigrants are rapists, immigrants are not are not uh, contributing to society. Even this morning, uh, you know, America is today 
uh, lowering its intake on refugees from 125. The Trump administration already lowered it from 125 to 50,000, and now they want to go down to 25,000 because it's a huge burden for us, right? And they should either go back to their countries or go to other countries that are closer to their environment. That's the stuff that is is said. However, we know that the number one reason how people stay is by overstaying their visa, which is largely from European and richer countries. So to say that the numbers support this, it's not factual. Well, there's plenty in, the, in this administration that is not factual. I, <laughs> no, I know uh, that. But, but, but I, I, I want to I stay, stay in a different place because— we have a lot of uh, topics on, on this podcast that are, yeah. are sort of about questioning the, the Trump administration's numbers. But I think there's something about a collision of values here that is happening. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and and I think the show that you're doing is more powerful for, for the point you make that, that it wasn't when it was constructed, specifically mm. thought of as a um, response to this era. But so I want to go back to this question of, of, a, of a specific example, mm-hmm. because what seems to me to be true about the Trump administration, it, it, to be in the most generous frame of mind towards it. Donald Trump looks out at people coming into America and he sees something being taken from us. He sees pretty much everything in life is zero sum, but he sees people coming in and taking from the people who are here. And it it seems to me that the core argument of the show is that people are coming here and enriching what is here. Yes. So so, so give me an example. Like, What what do you wish you could sit down with Donald Trump and show him to to try to convince him that these communities of immigrants or in some cases communities of, of, of more specifically refugees are adding something to America, not just taking jobs and taking security and taking culture away from the people he thinks of as Americans. Well, I mean, the incredible city that he's called home for decades, New York City, every corner, everything that we eat, everything that we take in as a culture, it's been added from immigrants, right? So this idea that is called multicultural in America, what it stands for, that he's benefited from, right? It's been added on by immigrants. And you can go from the Wurst guy, you know, sausage guy down the street from Trump Tower to Google. It's all added from immigrants that came to this country and added and worked hard. And we allowed each other to be each other's sort of on top of each other, but also supporting each other and questioning each other. So he clearly doesn't now want to buy into that, but he's been the benefiter of that on an emotional level, you know, he married immigrants, <laughs> he dates immigrants, right? So on certain time in life, he was supportive of that. And then when it behooved him, he just switched teams. And we've seen obviously that before. So I'm not sure if that I can speak to him about that. Uh, we've seen this in decades, you know, go back to Central Park Five or when he, he started to work uh, for his father in the 70s when he chose not to rent to African Americans. So these type of topics of diversity and inclusion are obviously not something that is interesting to him because um, he's, it's not like he's not informed. It's not like he's not having benefited from him. He's just choose not to be to, to uh, want to apply that uh, America to, uh, to him right now. There, there's something you said in a, in a previous interview that I thought was really interesting and wanted to ask you about. And so I'm glad you brought up New York City. Uh, you said this was in your discussion with Splendid Table mm. that New York City is extremely diverse, yet true diversity is very hard to experience. Yes. There's a lot packed into that. What, uh, unspool it for me. 
so many of these movements is something that we're actually learning right in front of us, right? And the generation that deals with it the most might not get it right. It's the next generation that will benefit. Like, I am a benefiter of the civil rights movement in America, right? So we're now going through other transition, but I think, like, my son's going to be the generation that actually truly, hopefully, benefit from that. So diversity, the two places where you really see diversity and experience diversity in New York City is the train, right? When you take the subway, right? It's all there, and everyone is equal. And and the other places is uh, the parks. So those, because the workplace, as much as we work towards that, we're not there yet. And I I used that and thought about that a lot while building Red Rooster to create and fight for diversity in my own workplace. So when my chef talks about green and forward thinking, the only greener I thought about was to hire for my local community because that would then inspire and create a working space that was diverse. And therefore, my customers would then buy in to be part of this journey of diversity together. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You've lived in uh, six, seven countries, right? Mm-hmm. Seven countries, What are the yeah. countries you've lived in? I mean, I grew up in Sweden, and then I lived for two years in Switzerland, which, you know, within itself is four different countries in itself, between the French and the German and the Italian and the Romanish. And then in Austria, I studied in Japan, which was super, super uh, important to me for Summon 11 on, on communication. I haven't lived in Ethiopia, but obviously I go back to Ethiopia and uh, continue to, you know, it's a big part of my wife and my our heritage, so we work with it uh, constantly. 
and then New York City, I mean, America and New York City, right? So all of those different experiences. And then I lived in France for, for cooking. So all of these different experiences have added, and I've, I've learned a lot from each place, you know? What's the difference between, in, in your experience, how New York City does diversity and how some of these other places you've been in do diversity? Well, um, I think New York City, as a black kid, you have to pick sort of uh, which racism do you prefer. <laughs> Those are your two options. Which tunnel, which door are you going to pick? And I picked the American door. I like, Of course, I'm minded if somebody shouted out nigger, but I just thought that was a pretty low, okay. <laughs> so what? that wasn't a lot to me. You know what I mean? That was like, it stung a little bit, but it's not like, okay, let's move on, right? But someone that is blatant, just racist in a traditional way, was better for me than to be racist in a structural way, right? And I feel like Europe, when I came up in the 90s, structurally, the glass ceiling for immigrants, refugees to create and own a business, to dream big, it wasn't there for me. I wanted to own and create a three-star Michelin restaurant. The time and the moment wasn't there for me. I was allowed barely to work in one, but not to own one. So ambitiously, I felt it was better for me to go to America, right? And again, those are just dreams, vision, because none of it existed, but I had to pick a door. And then my dad was really the one that said, you know, you got to go with the normalcy of people of color, wherever you are, are at the highest. And we picked New York because it's like there's black lawyers, there are Indian doctors, there are Korean Dentist, you got to go to a place where there's diversity, not just from the entertainment point of view or sports, but actually working people. And then we picked New York. Were, were there things when you got to New York about the way you were treated as a black man who people probably did not realize was an Ethiopian mm. child immigrant to Sweden mm-hmm. who grew up in Europe? And you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's the, not the, on the forehead. The, you, were coming <laughs> in, you were coming in as, a, as an outsider, but people probably mm. looked at you and thought, you know, this guy's from New York. Were, were there things about how you were treated that were just confusing to you? What, what did you see as an outsider that was surprising? I felt, first of all, I felt like coming to New York was um, the coolest thing ever, right? I was in awe of everything that New York had to offer, rollerblading in the park, watching street basketball in, in Harlem, Rucker Park, or in West Forth constantly being, you know, even if I couldn't afford or were invited to anything, but there's a certain energy, like people were having a, you know, it felt very free. And that's why I think why a lot of people love America, the feeling of freedom, even if you couldn't afford to be part of it, right? So that was something, and I saw people being different and didn't have to hide, whether people were gay or whether people were um, ate different food. It was all of those things that I came from a very structured place where all others kind of had to hide a little bit. Here, others were walk tall, and they were damn proud of it and get out of my way. I'm not apologizing for walking down the street. I love that. I truly love that about New York City. And it sounds like something we should take for granted, but you know we can't. People fought for gay rights. People fought for women's rights. People fought for uh, civil rights. So I came to this in the 90s and I'm like, wow, it's this vision is here. And I could have said, hey, the subway station is smellier than my Swedish bus. And people are not as nice. And people are screaming, fuck you, if you're in the, on their way. I looked at it as, as 
this is delicious sound. This is awesome. You know what I mean? So it, it all depends on what lens you want to look through it. And I was like, yes. And then the other thing it did for me, at that point, I've already li- traveled in Asia and lived all over. And having places like Harlem and Chinatown and Queens spoke to others. So I'm like, I wasn't the only one anymore. And that was a big relief, you know? I, I've been thinking a lot in that vein about how diverse neighborhoods like those and, and diverse places change and amplify creativity. And, you know, when you talk about creating Red Rooster and, and drawing on Harlem, um, you know, when we talk about New York or mm. we talk about Silicon Valley and San Francisco or Los Angeles, I mean, we we look at a lot of the, the places that power America's creative economies. Sure. And they're very, very diverse. Yes. Uh, and I don't think that's accidental. And this seems to me to be something that we don't have nearly as much language for as we should. So I'm curious about how being in New York mm. changed you as a creator. You seem like a very creative guy, yeah. um, a very, very visual guy. I mean, the the work you've done, obviously, restaurants has been celebrated. Mm. But you've also done very different kinds of things with sure. Aquavit being more, you know, drawing on Swedish roots and, mm. and Red Rooster trying to be a place that, that represents Harlem. I'm curious how the city, how that informs your creative process. There's two aspects of that. Growing up in Sweden with my my father that came from a fishing village, he was a fishing boy that ended up running his own business as a geologist, right? So watching him and traveling the world, so watching him being able to have almost dual citizenship. When we went back to this fishing village, we were paying our dues, we were giving mackerel to our neighbors, we were working with food, we were fixing the boats. So he could almost be, my dad can go between this urbanism and this fishing village environment and the urbanism represented the world to him. Like he was a geologist and building bridges in Saudi Arabia or, or working with Houston in terms of oils and stuff like that, right? And watching him sort of, watching my dad going between these places was both intimidating to me, but also fascinating, right? So I learned both entrepreneurship and a rural fishing village watching my dad. So I felt like, I always felt like being a chef so on one level, you need a discipline like a Barishnikov dancer and just you have to be strive for perfection. But at the same time, you can create, if you really work something, something amazing and this sort of theatrical experience and talk to the world if you really um, do it in a unique way. So I never felt that I couldn't do that because I felt my family, they didn't give me money, but they gave me so much backbone structure and inspiration on how. It was just up for me to figure out which key should fit. So blackness wasn't, my parents would never allow me to say like, well, they didn't hire me because I was black. You know what I mean? Like we knew that would happen. So we just had to find the place that would eventually, we had to keep on banging on doors. You know, we wrote to 30 different three-star Michelin restaurants, me and my mom, before we got the one we needed. Do you know what I mean? So they they just pushed me. It was They pushed me in a hard, hard, harsh way. And I do realize that I had the privilege of having two parents and that pushed me, you know what I mean? It was a little boot camp, I tell you. How did they push you? What, what were the things they did to, to give um, you that drive? Small things like, you know, we we grew up, of course, speaking Swedish, but, you know, maybe two nights a month, we had to speak English. 
and like you're a kid and you just want to get the butter from your sister or like whatever, like pass me the meatballs, and you have to say it in English. My father was very clear on you guys will not, maybe not live in Sweden. You might live abroad. You know, white parents raising black kids, and there wasn't a lot of examples of how to do that. So it could be, you know, it was my father came up with something driving home, and that's what we had to do, you know. Uh, so it's a lot of clumsiness, but, but you know, we just speaking, teaching me how to speak German, you have to, I don't know. You have to. You might have to go there. And one day when I lived in Switzerland, I was grateful for that. You know what I mean? Do you do you push your children in this way, or push yourself in this way now? I mean, do you do you force your family out of its routines and into sort of different languages or cognitive spaces, or, mm. or try to create that same? Because it sounds to me like what you're saying is your parents would create like shocks to your mental system that you couldn't just get comfortable. <laughs> well, you know, I, I hate to go back to blackness, but it wasn't comfortable. You know. Mm-hmm. Like, we always talked about, my mom's like, don't stick out too much in school. And I was like, Mom, come with us. Look at the school. You can line out 180 kids or 300 kids. Me and my sister will stick out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, we have the names of Marcus Samson, Linda Samson, the most Swedish names you possibly can think about. But, you know, once the class photo and that once kids are out in the yard, we stick out. You know what I mean? But but we also learned how to have fun with that. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a negative experience, right? And it did prepare me for the world. So I am eternally grateful for that, to have Korean cousins, to have a Jewish auntie. We were a bunch of misfits, and we pushed each other. You know what I mean? I, I was, you wrote about this a bit in your memoir, Yes, Chef, and I was really, I, I had not known this. You said that in Sweden, there was a long history of international adoption. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that your parents considered adopting Bolivian children yeah. before you. I often think of Sweden as a pretty homogenous culture yes. um, and, and a culture that is not all that friendly to, to people coming from, from outside. I mean, it's not a place like America that has this national creed that anybody can be an American. Mm-hmm. So what are the roots of the Swedish culture of international adoption? I think that Sweden has gone through different swings, right? Like when Sweden was neutral during the Second World War, which is just a horrible idea, right? And Sweden was always shameful of being neutral. So I think on two levels, they try to compensate for that post-1946, 47, right? One was that Sweden was one of the few countries in Europe that was never bombed. So we benefited from that in many ways because we can build the new Europe because, and we needed immigrants and refugees to start working in our country. So we gave out a lot of Swedish passports. So that's how the first or second labor market started in Sweden, right, in the 40s and the 50s. And the next generation of those kids, you know, they were Turkish or from former Yugoslavia or from Spain or Italy, right? So that created an other in Sweden that we still sort of are, they're the, the new Swedes in a way. And um, the adoption was another level of that, very often from Ethiopia, Korea, and because Swedish adoption within Sweden stopped in the early 70s. So our diversity didn't really come through immigrants. Very few people moved to Sweden the way people moved to America. Our, our diversity really came through work labor and refugees. And it's a difference, you know. I'm an immigrant to this country. I am choose to move to America. So it's easier for me to apply to come up and have an sort of arrive at a middle class. 
when you come as a refugee, you just want to get the hell out, out of your country. And Sweden, Holland, England, America, sure, I just need to get the hell out. That doesn't mean that you can't adapt. Uh, you just need a different uh, uh, skill set. So my uh, way of coming to Sweden was by luck and randomness, right? And, and I would be the first one to say that. As you traveled the world after that, I mean, because I'm really struck by how many different places you lived in. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. What was Japan like coming from Europe Amazing. and and being black? That Everybody who's spent time there has described mm-hmm. what a culture shock living in Japan is. What did it teach you? Well, you know, I've always had, whether I was in France or Japan, I... I was there for one specific thing, for the food. But of course, I got so much more. And in France, I could understand the language. In Japan, it wasn't even a point of trying, right? So you have to start communicating in ways that are not, you know, you look through people's friendliness through their eyes. You know, as chefs, we shared a lot of smells. So you start to develop a different skill set that I actually still trade off, right? When I meet people who, don't speak my language, right? Whether I'm in Italy or whether I'm in, in another part of the world where I can't communicate the language, that doesn't intimidate me because I've been in those situations. Obviously, Japan's history to race and where they were in during the Second World War is obviously very complicated. So, But that, I wasn't there for that, right? I was just a kid that wanted to learn how to make sushi. <laughs> so it's like people were very curious about me but you know I was used to all that stuff like people wanted to touch my hair people asked if I random shit if I knew Michael Jackson and then you know I didn't know Michael at that point (laughs) (laughs) did did that change over time did you and Michael become close later Uh, uh, no we didn't we never became close but it was it's always been this constant and that's sort of what what blackness does right as you travel these icons might change. I remember when I go to Africa, it's like, Obama. I'm like, mm, yeah. <laughs> or it might be, you know, in the, in, the, in the 90s, it could have been like in Sweden. It's like, oh, you live in America. Do you know Eddie Murphy? I'm like, don't really know Eddie. I love Eddie, but don't really know him. <laughs> it's like it becomes this random. So rather than get upset about that, you just have to laugh. You just have to laugh. It's just people that just want to smell you. That's all it is. So now as you, as you do this work looking at immigrant communities, I want to go back to a question I was asking mm. you earlier on. What is sort of the meta message of the show? What are you trying to show people by going to these different immigrant enclaves across the U.S. and giving people window into them? What is the lesson that either you've learned or that you're trying to teach? You have to draw a line in the sand. And do you want to be on the right side or on the wrong side? I grew up in Europe when the Berlin Wall came down. It was the most incredible thing in Europe if you lived in the eastern part. It changed everything. Now, America is this incredible, delicious, diverse place where we're on top of each other and argue. But it is America, the place that has been inspired places from all over the world to change and to come to. Now, you want to be that old dude that want to be like, no, no more smelly food, no more great hip-hop. We don't want Google. We don't want all these great ideas that people have given to us, right? If you want to be that guy, I feel it's like we are such an incredible country with all the different mistakes and all the different back and forth. Food is the thing. Music is the thing. Diversity is the thing that made us so special. If you want to be the guy that want to be part of putting that down, 
good luck. You know what I mean? You're not going to eat well. You're not going to dance well. You're not going to invite it to some fun parties. And you're not going to smile a lot. Good luck. That island looks very lonely. So I just look at this moment as like, guys, like, and also thinking about my son, like, when he's 15 or whatever, he's going to ask me, Dad, all this weird stuff happened. Like, when you were working, like, what did you do? You didn't do anything? You know, you had to, like, what, where was your level of resistance? What did you do? You know, because I grew up in a, with my grandparents. They didn't have any money. But during the war, it was clear for them to adopt a Jewish girl. They had no money, but they knew that that was right, right? So I grew up with people that, in my family that said, this matters. No matter what money you have, you have to stand for something. Like, my parents couldn't have kids, but they were not, they didn't think about, oh, I have to have white kids now because we're white parents. So I always grew up with this thing of, like, diversity. So this very core that I came to this country for. Are we going to go backwards? You know, like, this is not a good idea. Like, whoever thinks this is a good idea, it's not a good idea. So... We have to. This is the work I have to do. I've been trying to think about this a little bit. So, you know, in my work recently, I've been focusing a lot on the way America's changing demographics are, are freaking people out politically, particularly freaking a lot of white people out politically. And and that's a core part of our politics now. Not the majority of white people. The majority of white people yep. are extremely. And when this is gets forgotten, it's like this monolithic white people. Fuck that. Most white people are incredible. And are completely aware of a lot of stuff. We're talking about a few percentages. So I, it's just fucking crazy, this stuff. It's crazy. It's so un-American. But, but there is a—well, I always struggle with that idea because I think there are a lot of things we say are un-American, but they're not. I mean, You're these right. cycles that's, that's, between yeah. being friendlier and less friendly to immigration, friendlier and mm -hmm. less friendly to diversity. I mean, we are at— the, the percentage of foreign-born residents in America is mm -hmm. higher than it's been since roughly 1890-ish. Mm -hmm. And after that, you get those incredibly awful immigration bills in the early 1900s, you know, that, that are trying to change the gene pool we have in this country. I mean, like, you go back and you, you see it again. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself real quick. I My father is a Brazilian immigrant. Mm. And I grew up in Orange County, California, which while— Fala Portuguese? Uh, no fala Portuguese. No fala, no fala. From, uh, Just enough from to say the, I don't. <laughs> from São Paulo or—, or uh, Cariocas. Cariocas yeah, from, from Rio. Rio. So, so, so was he Flamengo or— uh -huh. uh, Flamingo yep. fan, thanks. Okay, good. I can talk to you. I know, yeah. No, <laughs> you, you guys can hang out. And, yeah. I, and I go back um, every two or three years or so, uh, and sometimes more oh, often nice. than that. I've, I have more family there than I have here. And then, so I grew up also in Orange County, which, while mm -hmm. it became famous for the OC, is yeah. actually not just a bunch of, you know, like white people having romantic problems. Um, no, you a, have great Vietnamese Amazing food, Vietnamese, Vietnamese food. food down the street. Uh, but also huge Hispanic really smelling culture. smelling good. And, and so something <laughs> that I've been thinking a lot about is that it's very intuitive to me that immigrants added, I mean, obviously, added a lot to my personal life, but added a lot to my community, that there was not a cost there, that, that it was a valued part of the, the milieu in which I grew up, that something wasn't lost, it was gained. And yet, it, it feels to me like we have this conversation about immigration and diversity that almost isn't a conversation at all. It is people who support it and people who feel, in some cases, threatened by it. And there's not a lot of talking. There's a lot of insisting. And then sometimes we try to talk about it in terms of economics because, like, it's bloodless and people, like, can argue about jobs with charts and it makes them feel better. But it feels to me that there are very few 
politicians or just leaders in general who are really talking about diversity in any sort of real way who are actually there's never a political debate about it there's just like there's something wrong and i'm just i know this is a, a tricky question but there's like not a conversation but, it feels but, like to me but Ezra what are you talking about you are the example of what it is to be an american your father you your parents like you are the example like this idea that we're not talking like for me it's like immigration is we are american like unless you're native what's up all of us are immigrants, right? So this idea that it was more important to come from former Czechoslovakia than Brazil or from, what are you talking about? Like, no, we're all immigrants. And as evolved people, there will be different issues to that. And we kind of have to deal with that. And they're not easy. And there's some left turns and right turns. And we got to expose and work on that together. But the America, whether we agree with it or not, is not going to get less diverse. It's going to get more diverse. So for me, it's like talking about electricity. We're going to go back to not having electricity. It's like talking about Wi-Fi. We're not going to go backwards. We're going to go forward. I don't, I don't think it works to tell people that they're on the wrong side of history. There's an inevitability to something. And and that's part that's part of what I mean in this conversation. But that, you went to college and I didn't. You are educated. I'm just a cook. That is separates I see how many businesses you run. I'm not gonna, I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to let you back out of it that way. Um, you've been you've been to every country in the world, and I have this parochial yeah. little perspective here. Yeah. But yeah. but here's what I mean. Like when you listen to mm -hmm. Donald Trump talk, I think if you really got down to the core of Donald Trump's politics, like the molten core, he is uncomfortable with the way America is changing. But he frames that in terms of security. He frames it in mm -hmm. terms of illegal immigration. I think one of the most telling things about the whole Trump presidency is he talks about a wall. He talks about illegal immigration. Then you get down to the negotiation about immigration and he says what he wants, he's not even going to build the wall unless he can also cut legal immigration by 50 percent. There's this way in which there, I think, needs to be a genuine like political conversation about diversity where people's fears are aired, but also the, the case for it is aired. It's why I'm focusing in this conversation with you so oh, much great. about creativity. I think it actually needs to be talked about as the thing itself. When we tend sure. to talk about like immigration is how we get more diversity, but it's like the thing people are experiencing is the diversity, not the immigration. Yeah, but I can have that conversation with you because you're an evolved individual. The truth is out, and it started in the 70s when you choose not to have black people rent in your apartment, when you choose to say that Central Park Five kids support death penalty, when you say that a former president is not born in this country. So you're peddling on facts, and there's a history of that. I will not, I cannot have a healthy conversation with a person that is clearly show where they stand on certain aspects of the population. And it's to my core so hurtful, to the, my, the, the very core I exist hurtful, that a person like that, if you even saying that it's politics, it's not politics. Politics is actually real. It's like what real people are working on. This is, not, this is very sophisticated version of what we've seen before. It is hatred, and it's a very simple message that he knows people that don't have access to the information you and I have access to can sort of hang on to. But if we want to have a conversation about diversity, diversity, inclusion, and incorporation, yes, I agree. Those are highly complex issues. You know, I'm learning about 
what does it mean to be pan or what does it mean to go from vegan to uh, um, flexitarian or whatever. Those are other levels of diversity, right? And I, w- I want to learn those experiences and be on the right side of that and have to evolve because I don't know everything about it. But as an individual, I'm highly intrigued and I want to learn about it, right? You and I can have those conversations because you show a deep level of interest of having this. But if we're going to peddle falsehood, I can't. I'm out. But this is and why I'm work. this is why to me your show is so interesting. That I, I take your point, right? And and I certainly take your point about about Trump. Like he's also not a guy who it seems to me has a lot of conversations. <laughs> I don't feel like that's actually his mode. Um, I don't think he's persuadable in that way on those things. And so, but but that said, there is a conversation we're all having all the time yes. as a country, and you don't get to choose who's in it because no. that's not how the voting works. Yeah. But what's so interesting to me about your show is that it, it feels to me like a way of having the conversation. Look, you made this great point about Trump earlier in the show where you said, look, here's this guy. You know, he slandered the Central Park Five. And by the way, continues to do it despite them being mm-hmm. exonerated on DNA evidence. He says these terrible things. And he's also married to an immigrant. He's a New Yorker. He employs immigrants uh, at all sorts of his businesses. And not only that, by the way, he's been hit. <laughs> Mar-a-Lago um, is applying for an exemption so it can hire more immigrants, saying that it can't get Americans to do these jobs. There is a question. One of the things that I've come to, to, to believe and struggle with in politics, we tend to want to make people all one thing or another. And here mm-hmm. I'm not talking about You're Trump. Right. I'm talking no. about all of us. You're right. And yet we're a lot of different things at the same time, um, sometimes completely contradictory things. Mm-hmm. And a question is which which version of us is called out in any given moment. And yeah. it feels to me, one of the things I'm interested in in the show is that it seems to me that one of its messages, one of its teachings, one of its lessons is that you as an American, whether you sort of know it or not, are part of this culture that is being enriched by having these other ideas in it, yes. right? It goes all the way up to Google, but it also goes all the way down to Vietnamese cooking in Louisiana. And that there's something here that you're gaining from, even if you don't realize you're touching it. Yes. And to, to think about that, that, that that feels to me like part of the conversation that, that we need to have. Because I feel like people look at these communities, they drive by them or, or they see them and they think that has nothing to do with me and it looks different and maybe it looks even hostile to me. But it, and but it, it seems to me part of the, the show, the travel you're doing is that yes. you're trying to make people see that differently. That is right. Like, let's talk about Detroit. So and it's very mirror image to me to Harlem, right? So people are reading now that Detroit is good now. I said, whoa, 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 what does that mean? What do you mean Detroit is good now? If you would talk in that tonality to the Arab American community that's been in Dearborn in Detroit for 50 years, that have been working in their small businesses, that just like you said, people have been driving by. But those communities have kept the light on and unemployment down and people have learned a lot and benefited from all of these places. So we tend to look at things, just say from big corporation matters, but like let's walk in Harlem from 125th from Columbia University all the way to Red Rooster. Once you come down across the street from Apollo, you see those vendors. When those vendors are gone, which are small businesses to me, then Harlem is gone. And once those small businesses in Dearborn are gone, then Detroit is not Detroit, right? And also that Vietnamese thing that we benefited from, it could also grow to slant the doors. In San Francisco, there's now a $100 million business. So now we're going to accept it because it's a $100 million business. (laughs) But when it was just Charles and his family cooking, 
weren't there American, weren't there. So, I mean, this idea that we should only celebrate things at a corporate level of success, most schools, most colleges, most families are there because of small businesses. And guess what? It's not a small business to them nor their community. It's every business that is the only business that they have. So this idea that innovation doesn't come from a big room, which you know you started something clearly. It didn't start in the corporate office on the 19th floor looking out at the park. It started in a dirty, grimy basement and it was a bunch of people that came Don't you speak that way about my basement. <laughs> you know, and it started based on this like, well, I think this and I want to interrupt stuff. And here's my point about interruption. Interruption for me is very American. It's rock and roll. It's like, and it's hip hop. And that's what we build off. That is so American to me. It's like looking at something one way and because the person you started the business with or this idea with wanted to do it a little bit different. And the consumer, whoever it is, whether it's the person that buys ice cream or whether it's the person buying pho or, or fried chicken or a big business like Google, that's the winner. And it takes all of us as Americans to be like, oh, I don't like this. Well, I like this best. So, and then the corner store opened over here. Once you stop that innovation, other places going to run by us. And guess what? It's happening. And I tell you a place that it's filled with hot and shit old countries. It's happening in Africa right now. Innovation in Kenya, in Nairobi, or in, in South Africa, or in Indonesia, places like that, that we're looking at America already based on technology and innovation because people who have, don't have a lot but now have access to technology, they're hungry game, they're going to come hard and we're going to be the benefiter of, of it. So one of the things I want to build on with that is, and, and this is something that I'm excited we got to, I've been thinking a lot about the question of like, what is creativity? Like literally what mm. is it? How does it happen? Because the economies, the countries that are going to succeed in this era and the future are going to be the most creative ones. Like that, that is the economy where we're fundamentally mm. in. And if you're an American and you're worried about jobs and you're worried about wages, like the question is like, how can America be maximally creative? And I think we often think about creativity as a sort of an individual talent, that mm. creativity, like that person is, you'll, you'll hear this said, right, about a kid, oh, you're so creative. Mm -hmm. But like there might be some aptitude to creativity. I don't know how you would break it down. I don't know how you would define it, but I'm, I'm sure it's there. Yeah. But it's also inputs. It is also like one of the things that I see in myself or my, my colleagues or, or my competitors or, or the people I admire, people like you or, or artists, when they're doing great creative work is they are pulling things that they have seen or experienced together in new ways. They are drawing connections. And like maybe the aptitude of creativity is the ability to draw connections, but you can't draw the connections if you don't have the things to draw them between. Sure. And so a lot of what seems to me to make America great <laughs> is that we have had so many things to draw connections between. Yeah. Because we've had so much diversity, so much immigration, so many people coming from different places with different ideas. And you could draw uh, things between them. I saw um, – I'm late to everything because I'm uncool. Yeah. So I saw Hamilton yeah. for the first time this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is great. And if you haven't seen it, like me, you should, you no, should yeah, see sure. it. Of course. But um, yeah. what was so amazing to me about that was thinking about it as a creative act, recognizing how many things Lin-Manuel Miranda had, had, yeah. had seen that he could draw connections between um, uh, musicals, hip-hop culture, like American history. Like, it, it's a remarkable act of creativity. I can take one example that is very simple, you know. For me, 
one of the most American and creative ideas over the last 40 years is hip-hop. Yep. Right? Because it really, it was built on something else, and then there's a massive interruption, right? And in the beginning, certain people understood it better, but then eventually, as you started to build on it, it became for everyone, right? And something that started awkwardly in the Bronx, and then went to Queens, and then went to New York, and then to LA, and to the world, right? What could be more American than that? And when, when Cool Herc started in the basement uh, in, in the Bronx, it's creativity because it's new and it's interruptive and it sounds awkward to people that come from the, the outside, right? And it took us about 40 years to get make it into pop because today, whether you run an ad campaign or whatever you do, it all really comes down to some level of marketing piece around hip-hop today because it's essentially pop culture, right? But it takes time, right? And I think that that is... America, when people look at America from outside, we wait for these things that comes from the very American. You look at Facebook, you look at Apple, you look at big businesses like that, right? But they were all interrupter in the space at some point. And that, for me, is American. And that can only happen if we are people that are allowed to build, right? Like Microsoft is the build-up from IBM. And, you know, Apple came and showed up. And then I'm sure some other bad boy or girl is going to come somewhere from China or India and be like, boom. And then you have Alibaba and that's going to build on Amazon and ta, 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 ta. So it's this idea that you can't stop creativity. And America, if we continue to work on it, will always be part of the core of that. It's not going to be the only place where cool shit comes from. We own that for a long, long time. It's not going to be the only place. And that's not bad because there's going to be an American kid somewhere in Cincinnati or Harlem or Orange County that said, that's a great idea. I don't care if that person is Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Chinese. I'm going to build on that great idea. You know, and this for me, this idea of America is larger than borders. It's something that belongs to everyone. And technology and hip-hop and modern example, we have thousands of examples that sort of shows that. That's what we should build on, not figuring out. You know, if, if in the 1980s we broke down walls and 2018 you want to build a wall, that's not modern. It's just not a modern way of thinking on the world. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else. 
and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Let me ask you about another side of this conversation that, that has emerged with more force recently, which is, so we're talking about creativity as this way of building, as this way of people looking into other cultures and drawing connections and taking part of it and making something new out of it and hip hop and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of frustration on the idea now of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. um, the idea that, that people then are, are, are strip mining these cultures and taking their pieces for themselves. Sure. Uh, you know, and you get – you know, I think you get some of the the edge cases that everybody looks at and say, that sounds weird, right? Like there's like mm-hmm. a burrito cart run by some white women. I think it was in Portland that, you know, that, that became a sure. that became a cultural flashpoint. But there's a more sophisticated conversation around this that I honestly have very unsettled mm-hmm. feelings about. Yeah. And I'm curious how you think about that. I know there's been some of that conversation also about Red Rooster. Like when is something a, a, a healthy engagement with culture and a building and a kind of like part of the human – creativity and sharing? And when is something appropriation and and selfish and taking? I think it's for each person to have to think about that differently, right? I'm a very slow mover. I moved to Harlem seven years before I opened Red Rooster and just studied, you know, went to the churches to understand not just the spirituality of the church, but what happened afterwards. Where was the food afterwards served? You know, being in the park to understand what was the source of a block party. And it took me seven years to fully understand whether I was looking at Gordon Park's images or speaking to elders in the community. I did it that way. And still, when you start something, it's just not going to say snap and work right away. It's going to be some awkwardness because it's a public space. It's not something you can control a restaurant. And we were extremely popular. So there's going to be a lot of opinions on that. And you know what? I welcome that because all of that forces me to work harder and better on it and knowing that we're going to be imperfect. So I welcome all of that. But I go back to the what was our purpose? Our core purpose is to employ people within the community and to give back, to share. So if I'm going to be clumsy in the beginning of that, but my core purpose is to give back and and teach, give me some time and I will do that. And I think for us, it came to We've been committed to do cooking classes for free for kids, for example, forever, or starting Harlem Eat Up, where 15,000 people comes every year in May to our food festival. So... Yeah, it can get awkward on in the bloggers' hemispheres and on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm like, it's okay. You can punch at me because this is not a bus stop. I'm going to continue to work, and this is a lifetime work, right? So, But I think each person has to do that for themselves. I'm not suggesting everyone should take seven years, but each person should kind of look at that. What is my long-term intent? And, you know, you can't open any business in New York or America and think you're not going to get punched at a little bit. And if you can't take that, you're not ready. You know, I remember very often when I worked in France or I worked in Switzerland, and a lot of the the kids, I was, you know, was always the only black kid and, and so whatever. But the two people that always stayed was the women that got to that kitchen and me. Some of the other kids were like, oh, I'm not going to allow chef to scream at me or throw a pan at me or whatever it is. And they very often left. And I'm like, you don't have the stamina to understand what it means to be here. 
if you say, I'm going to open in Harlem, <laughs> you're having a big public conversation. And if we don't have the stamina to sort of be there on all sides of that and only want people to say, this is fantastic, Marcus, you go, I'm not ready to have a restaurant in Harlem. So I think my appropriation, my tent is right. It doesn't mean that every move I'll do will be correct. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, That's but, but it sounds to me, um, generalizing out some of the principles there, it sounds to me like the big thing you're saying is that one of the differences between, uh, I don't know what the, the other term is, but cultural appropriation, whatever it's, it's mm. whatever the healthy version of it is, is are you taking, are you just taking, or are you also giving back? Like, are you also you adding back? You have to. You have to adding back. And, and for me, it was very clear. Our industry needed to be more diverse. Well, stop talking about that create a destination in Harlem and start building from within. And that's what we're doing. And that does not work that's going to take a, a month or a year. It's it's commitment forever. You know what I mean? And we see starting to see some great examples of that. But, you know, everyone has the right to question that. And I think even what you just said, this is a great conversation to have. What is culturally appropriate and, and what is not? And within that, you learn and you're going to learn something. You know, people have been coming to communities, very often people of color communities. And you tell me a time when black culture has not been cool, right? Like you look at Dapper Dan and then you look at all the fashion houses, but it took 40 years for Dapper Dan to get the Gucci contract, right? And it wasn't like people wasn't interested in urban clothing, right? So, you know, but Dap is still around and we're so proud of him. Do you know what I mean? So this idea of coming into a place and doing your own version of it, we've seen it in music, we've seen it in fashion, we've seen it in food. I think it's good with social media now. You have many places where you can actually highlight that and have that conversation. And you know what's very American? Have it loud and clear. And, and we don't have to agree. And I love that because out of that comes better work. I think it's so interesting how much the food industry has been outspoken on on, on issues of immigration to diversity. Mm. And, and and it always seems to me that it's in part because you cannot work in that industry without recognizing how much of it is built on immigrants doing work, but also on different food cultures melding together. And in the past month, the industry has lost. And gay community. And gay community. Thank yeah. you very much. I mean, I wouldn't even I'm like we were a bunch of misfits working in the restaurant and pushed up against each other. And that's why it's really delicious, you know? Yeah. and But but one place I was going to take that was that in the last month, Anthony Bourdain and Jonathan Gold, mm. who I think of as sort of the two of the greatest ambassadors mm. for that message, have died. Yeah. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your your experiences with, with those two men, because I know Bourdain in particular, mm. you you dedicated the first episode of the new show to him, that he's been, he's been an inspiration to you. How did you meet him the first time? Well, you know, I I said the other day, it was like losing Michael and Prince in the same months, right? And you just don't come back from that. You don't come back. It's it's not going to come two new guys and be like, oh, we're back. No, you're losing two of the greatest back to back. You know what I mean? And it's not an easy, easy for the industry, but also for diversity as a whole. And I think both of them are great examples what diversity looks like in, in many ways, right? Because it's not the fact that, you know, Anthony was in his early 60s and, and during the late 50s, but where they took us, the diversity was in there where they took us, you know? And um, L.A. food scene without Jonathan and where he took his reader and his viewers, 
it wouldn't be the same. And he always stood up for ethnic communities that are, you know, he always curated and guided us before those words of curation even was a word, right? Like he always went there. And he really helped me understand L.A. as a food city in a completely different eye. And um, Tony, I met in the late 90s when it was still at La Salle, and um, I got to know him more during Kitchen Confidential when he, you know, we used to go to different book events together. He always um, got me drunk and always, <laughs> always had good stories. And he, I remember one year, like, he took me to one of these, like, Russian bars in the, in the 40s. And anytime I go by there, like, it's just South of Hill Kitchen, I just have smirk, I have a smile. Every single person in the bar was a character. So our server was, like, Ella Fitzgerald, but she was Russian. <laughs> and Tony knew exactly how to, like, be in this space. And, uh, but everyone stayed sort of in character. There. And uh, he just put me in the cab after a couple of hours later. It's like, we both have an event tomorrow, but you have to be sober. I don't. And then he just put me in the cab, sent me home. And it's just, I have so many, like, just good moments with him, you know, like we can argue about shit, you know. And he helped me see something I didn't see. So I I miss him. I, I, I want to zoom in on, on something you just Notice there about the the way he was comfortable in that space. There's something about I've been I've I never met him or spoke to him, but I've watched and read his work for forever. Yeah. It's very rare. I'm I'm a reporter, and so I know what it's like to be in spaces that are very unfamiliar. Mm. Yeah. And it's hard to be in them. It's certainly hard to be in them with comfort and with openness. And there's something about I was always very impressed by the way he was able to fit himself into spaces without losing himself. It's yeah, a very, sure. very rare thing. And, and I'm curious what, what what you think was behind that or what you took from that capacity as somebody who's now doing similar work of going into spaces that are, are not ones you probably know very well, but you have to, you have sure. to be a, a guide for a viewer who's even more um, alien to them than you are. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Tony talked a lot about was his addiction when he was a heroin addict. And for example... He talked a lot about, well, at 5 o'clock, he was thinking about, he knew what shelter to go to, right? He knew what would happen. Like, he, he, he had so many insights of worlds. I have a lot of insights and windows into worlds because of my diverse background. He had a whole other layer of information that was, and he spoke to me about it very openly. You know, those are not easy things to just talk about. Do you know what I mean? And so I think he's been to spaces completely with himself, but also with others in a space where it's not about holding up a facade. So when he went into Ethiopia and ate inners with my wife's mother or something like that, or when he took us to Lebanon, or when he took us to West Virginia to meet Trump voters, he didn't try to keep up a facade of like perfection. He's like, you talk, I'll listen. And you talk some more and I listen some more, you know. The facade was down when he was working, you know. This is a question I have about him. Um, and it's an odd one to ask because I guess yeah. it's quite personal. But I read after he died a lot of interviews with him. And I was thinking about how unbelievably honest he seemed in when he spoke. Um, and, and I said to somebody who does a lot of 
talking in public and does a podcast yeah. and does interviews and yeah. and I think how you know I I've tried in the last couple of years to be more open with mm. who I am um, than I was before but it, it's very hard sure. and there's a lot still that I that I hold back and it's made me realize that I don't really know when people are being truly honest right there's like people can draw a lot of lines in themselves you know it's very easy to to give people something that seems like a very authentic version of yourself sure, but it's actually sure, quite carefully curated right like but I think these we are all, the flaws I think we all struggle with that yeah. I think that you're great for you to recognize it and talk about it but you're probably in the majority there especially someone that's a public persona you know do you do you think as somebody who knew him better was his, do you think that he was an unusually honest public persona or was that an, a, a sort of like an unusually capable hiding it's it's very it's very hard um it's very very hard for me to talk about this I'm sorry, I didn't mean to open the wound in that way. I don't have a clear train of thought on it. I just think that he's been to hell and back, and he gave us so much. As you do your show, are there are there parts of his work that, that you try to bring into it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I emailed him, and we, Tony and I, I have this really dear friend that is is Tony's best friend and was Tony's best friend and came and it was also very hard to get super, super close to Tony. So I just wanted to say thank you to him as I was working and I shot him this note what I wanted him to know about how much he inspired me and he knew this but like I just wanted to put it you know, I just wanted to shoot him a note you know what I mean? And uh where I look at Tony as a three-star Michelin chef, I always aspired to those French guys. And Tony in a new version inspired so many people and looked at food in a completely different way. And I just wanted him to know how much I admired him for that, for taking us to places that we would never see otherwise. And obviously as we were shooting the show, we were talking about, you know, what's our lane uh, with, so our lane is, it's different than parts unknown and and our lane, my lane, you know, and I always felt like Tony was like an uncle to like I could always like ask him like and he just said like you you have to listen. You have to you can't go in there as a chef, you just gotta go in and listen. So just having those comments, having that these back and forth. I, I've heard you talk before about how one of the lessons you've taken from him is listening. I'm I'm curious how you think about that quality of listening. What's the difference between going into these communities and being quiet when people talk versus listening? I mean, so much of what you said about holding up a facade and persona, which we all do, but like people could have this idea of, here's a chef coming, I have to clean my kitchen, or I have to soup cook the best food ever. You don't. Like, I don't know your food, and I'm not going to front like I know your food, and if my Vietnamese spring roll is not done right, please tell me, because... All of us that are chefs and are in the industry, we love when we get told what to do by someone that clearly knows it much better and has a not just 
a perfection point of view on it, but a personal. So for me, it was really like, let's be the audience and the viewer at the same time and be a fan, but then also don't come in there as a chef and be like, intimidate anyone. You just, I just wanted my Vietnamese auntie to show me how to do those spring rolls or the Lebanese Tatar or whatever the opportunity was. And the best way of doing that was to take sort of your chef hat, leave it at the door, check it at the door, and then go back to this like sort of food fanatics and say, like, I'm interested, I'm here. And, and really not just showing that you're enthusiastic about it, but actually being enthusiastic about it, right? And that's something that I, I wanted to transcend, you know, like, I'm here, I don't know, I've, I've not had this dish before, and I'm, you know, I'm excited, you know, and, and showing that, being open. So I learned a lot of that work actually at Red Rooster in a way because I didn't grow up with Southern soul food or food from migration. So it was a way for me to, through that work, say like, hey, part of our food is going to be inspired by Southern food, but part of it is also going to be what I look like at Harlem right now. But at Aquavit, I had to have the answer to Swedish perfection food. Here I don't. Here I'm just part of the the guest at the same time. And at part unknown, I'm part of the audience experience at the same time. What's the most emotionally resonant meal you've had on the show? Not the best meal, but but the most emotional meal. I think in um, Chicago and Mitokaya, and not just, just Mitokaya, but it angers me so much, but you can't walk around as an angry person when you, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to be that. But the falsehood of what we apply in, on Mexicans and their food, nothing could be more beautiful and delicious than Mexican food. And when you're in Chicago and you look at the Mexican community that have been there for over 100 years and built that city, and I'm like, how can we even utter these words about how can this even be okay? And the way that Diana at Mitokaya, the level of pride she has, or, you know, I learned about Mexican food pre-Spanish and the level of commitment of just like, this is emotionally important. And I will never forget that. Or I would even say being in Detroit with the Arab community, just looking at the falsehood and the deliciousness, nothing could be further from the truth than this. When I met Samir, been in America for 60 years, and his food is absolutely delicious. And he's so proud to be here. And, you know, he has pork ribs and he has Lebanese food on the menu, and it's delicious. And I think that by itself is America. And I'm so excited that we were able to show places that most likely would never have a camera there. You know, and I got to give shout out to Sonia at Eater because she drove the curation in terms of where to go. Finding a place like La Barca, uh, on the south side in the back of the yard in Chicago that is both it's all things it's a deli taqueria a butcher shop and a bar all in one now if you can't dig that I can't help you I can't <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a good place to wrap up so let me ask you the question we, we used to end the show which is what are three books you've read uh, that, that you would recommend to the audience oh yeah I mean I'm gonna keep it to my two loves that I've had all my life. 
when I was a kid, that got me into reading was the memoir of Pelé. It's not a really great book, but when you're eight and you're a black kid in Sweden looking for your identity, it's like, whoa! As the son of a Brazilian, guy. you're speaking my language yeah, here. Exactly. <laughs> and then I would say Charlie Trotter's first cookbook. Again, it's not a great read, but it changed American food in so many ways. The way Alice Waters changed American food and a couple of, you know, John Waxman. When Charlie Trotter shot and introduced food in a completely different way, I said, I have to go. What was, I, how out. did he change it? What was the food he changed? Well, I mean, first of all, he was not in New York and San Francisco. He was in Chicago, and he used— he was talking about vegetarian food in the 1990. He was talking about Buddha fruit. He was introducing, like, there was no borders. And the way he shot the food is really what drove sort of American food, food scene for the next 20 years, right? And he literally said, I got to go. Wherever this guy is, I got to go. And I gathered my money, and I, I went, you know? So Charlie's book... That first one, every chef I, I know has that. You know what I mean? It's just you have that. And the other one is Leah Chase, Still I Cook. You know, here's there's my idol because we talk about taking risks and chances and, and, and standing up, fist up. Here's a woman that started her business in the 40s, black woman in New Orleans, started Duke Chase, where black and white people couldn't eat in the same restaurant. You got arrested for that. So 15 years before that, she broke the law every day by staying open. She broke the law every day by staying open. And that level of, I'm going to do this because this is my community, it's something that, that is a real commitment to my food, my community, I'm here, and I don't care. We always talk about, we need to be a country of laws. Sometimes. But sometimes the law is wrong. <laughs> and she kept on cooking and served everybody until the law changed. And now she's only been in business since 1940 to 2018. Overcame segregation, integration. She overcame, of course, Katrina, economic at times, up and down. And she's still there at Duke Chase, only 94 years old. What could be more American than a black female owning her own business, raising generational cooks, in NOLA. You know, this is why I love this country. So if you want to go with Marcus around the country, the show is called No Passport Required. And it's on PBS. And what time is it on PBS? Nine o'clock. Nine o'clock on which day? it's on Eater as well. Tuesdays at nine o'clock. And you can also stream it from Eater. And that's the, the other thing. You can also stream it from Eater.com to search Eater and No Passport Required. Marcus, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Marcus Samuelson for being on the show, for being so open. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we'll be back next week.